Hey there! Do you like legends, myths, and whiskey? Or maybe just one of those things? Then you should listen to the Legends, Myths, and Whiskey podcast. For more information, head over to legendsmythsandwhiskey.com. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining podcasts. Society-13.com. I like to listen. Welcome to Channel 9 of the STRY Radio Network, where stories live. Sky opens up and uh, the Archangel Metatron comes out with his fiery sword and here this demon comes out and he's got a laser gun and robot legs. <sighs> oh, hi, everybody. <clears throat> I'm uh, John Towers from Stigmata Studios and the Abercast and I just want to remind everybody that the Wicked Library is for... <clears throat> uh, 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 the Wicked Library is for mature... <clears throat> Ah, hello, John. Enjoying the drink, I see. I replaced your red horse with a dead horse. <laughs> Say hi to three of the four horsemen of the apocalypse for me. I don't speak to pestilence. He bugs me. <laughs> the Wicked Library is for mature audiences only. Listen to discretion is advised. See you in the afterlife, Johnny. <laughs> Somebody get them all. of John Gray into Harting by Society elicited much interest in the town, as the arrival of any bachelor of good fortune into a country town may be expected to do. Ladies with unmarried daughters were at pains to make themselves agreeable to the newcomer. If his fortune recommended him to the parents of the town, his company was, due to his handsome countenance, no less sought after by the young ladies themselves. Though in fortune and features he may have been considered an eligible, prospective husband, 
his manner was not all that could be desired. For one thing, he never laughed, and on the rare occasions when a smile graced his lips, it never reached his eyes, which remained cold and unblinking. It left people with an uncomfortable sensation that they were being studied in some way, like specimens in a laboratory. These peculiarities of temperament meant that the enthusiasm in which he was initially courted was, to some degree, suppressed as time went on. But it was by no means abandoned. One family with whom he was a frequent guest were the Simpsons. One evening, when Mr. and Mrs. Simpson and the two Miss Simpsons, Isabella and Maria, were seated after dinner in their drawing room. The conversation turned towards their neighbor. I saw Mr. Gray in town today, my dear. Mr. Simpson remarked to his wife. He inquired after you and the girls. That was very civil of him, I'm sure, replied Mrs. Simpson. And how did you find him? Very well, my dear. He was telling me about the plans he has for the house. He hinted, said Mr. Simpson with a sly glance towards Isabella, that what the place really needs is a woman's touch. Maria cast a look at her sister and suppressed a giggle. I think, continued Mr. Simpson, that our Isabella has caught Mr. Gray's eye. I should not be at all surprised if there is a proposal before very long. Isabella's eyes widened in shock. Oh, Papa, cried she, you must not jest about such things, the very idea. Jest? Not at all, my darling. I am in earnest. Oh, I pray then that you are mistaken, for I assure you I had no idea of such a thing, and I could take no pleasure in such an occurrence, she said in great distress. Well, well, my dear, there is no need to take on so. I am not a tyrant. I shall not insist upon your acceptance should the matter arise. But still, you might do worse, you know. He has a good fortune. And you might find that you come to care for him. Oh, I never shall. There is something very odd about him. I don't know quite what it is, but he gives me the shivers. And as though to demonstrate her point, she gave a little shudder. What nonsense. Perhaps he is a little stern in his appearance, but there are worse things to be in life than serious, my dear. To this, Mrs. Simpson chimed in. I'm afraid I agree with Isabella, my dear. I am not at all sure that I should be pleased to have such a son-in-law, fortune or no fortune. Quite, said Maria. He is very handsome, to be sure, but there is something rather frightful about him all the same. Well, well, it seems I must defer to women's intuition. Oh, dear, said Isabella. Now that you have told me this, I really dread to meet Mr. Gray again. I think I shall die of embarrassment. I'm afraid you will have to do your best to be civil, for I have invited him to dine with us on Tuesday. Tuesday? Surely you haven't forgotten, Papa. That is the evening in which Mr. Logan is to come dine with us, said Maria. At mention of this gentleman's name, Isabella became very flushed. To be sure, I had, said her father. But it is no matter. On perceiving Isabella's countenance, he laughed heartily. Ha ha! And now I see the true reason for your condemnation of poor Mr. Gray. At this, Isabella's face went from pink to a deep crimson. I do believe Mr. Logan also has eyes for Isabella, said Maria. 
only fancy Isabella, two suitors to choose from. If all the eligible gentlemen of our acquaintances are to fall in love with you, I shall die a perfect old maid, she teased. There is no fear of that, sister, said Isabella with a laugh. But really, I do wish that you had not invited Mr. Grey, Papa. Well, there is not much to be done about it now. You will simply have to make the best of it, my dear. And so poor Isabella was left to contemplate the uncomfortable evening ahead. Tuesday came, and Isabella's discomfort was to some extent lessened by the very courteous attentions paid to her by Mr. Logan. But even her happiness in this regard could not wholly dispel the sense of gloom which she felt in the presence of Mr. Gray. It seemed that he too had observed Mr. Logan's intentions towards her, and evidently he resented it. Up until her father's revelation, she had been oblivious to Mr. Gray's intentions towards her, preoccupied as she was with thoughts of her other suitor. Now, however, she could not fail to notice the dark looks he threw towards her. She could feel his resentment hanging in the air, though he was perfectly civil in his speech. During the course of the evening, there was something of a contest of wills to engage her in conversation. Though she had no wish to appear discourteous towards Mr. Gray, she was always conscious of inadvertently offering anything that might be construed as encouragement. It put her in the most difficult position. Though her mother and sister did their best to distract Mr. Gray, his eyes continually returned to Isabella and his rival. On one occasion, Isabella looked up to see Gray's eyes fixed on Logan. She shivered to see the look of pure hatred peeping through the well-rehearsed mask of civility. And for the first time, she began to conceive fear of Mr. Gray. He did not know she had seen him. His attention was too fiercely fixed on Logan. She tried her best to shake off the uncomfortable sensation and maintain her usual liveliness of spirit. But she was not happy, and she was glad when the guests had gone. When the family retired for the evening, Isabella did not go straight to sleep, but instead slipped out of her own room and went next door to her sister's. She tapped lightly on the door. Hearing her sister bid her enter, she went in. Maria turned towards the door. She startled as she saw her sister. My dear Isabella, she cried. How pale are you? You look dreadfully wan. My poor darling, are you unwell? No, I'm not ill, Maria, but something is troubling me. Come, said Maria, patting the bed. Sit by me and tell me what it is. Isabella joined her sister and began to tell her of her fears. Did you see the way Mr. Gray looked at Mr. Logan tonight? He looked as though he hated him, said she. Maria smiled. Well, in the circumstances, it would be natural enough. Mr. Logan did, after all, abscond with your affections and callously steal you away from him, she teased. Oh, don't say so. To say he stole me from him makes it sound as though I was his property somehow. Maria, seeing her sister's evident distress, ceased to tease her and endeavoured instead to soothe her. My poor dear, whatever is the matter? I'm afraid, Maria. Dreadfully afraid. You did not see the way he looked at him 
It was so utterly malevolent, I really believed that he intended some evil towards Mr. Logan. Maria was taken aback by this pronouncement, but something in her sister's voice impressed her. Do you know what you're saying, Isabella? Surely you do not believe that he means to harm him? She asked in hushed tones. I do not know. I cannot explain it. But I have this awful feeling that something dreadful is going to happen. Some kind of presentiment, if you will. There is certainly something strange about Mr. Grey, said Maria thoughtfully. His eyes are always so cold, almost empty. I knew I should not care to be married to such a man. I pray that you're wrong, Isabella, but I do not see what is to be done. I must warn Jack, she blushed, that that is Mr. Logan. But he will think it is only a woman's fancy. Men are so infuriatingly close-minded, said Maria, throwing herself back on the bed. It cannot be helped. I, I cannot do nothing. I must tell him and bear his ridicule. As it turned out, Mr. Logan took her words very earnestly. Unbeknownst to her, he too had seen the look in Gray's face and was not unimpressed. He promised her sincerely that he would take particular care when it came to Gray. However, undeterred by Gray's jealous attentions, he determined to pursue his hopes and make her an offer of marriage. The offer was made and she very readily accepted. Her parents made no objection, and there was great rejoicing. For a day or two, it seemed Gray's oppressive influence was lifted. Isabella and Maria were so distracted that they hardly spared a thought of Mr. Gray. But one morning, their father returned from town with the news that he had spoken to Mr. Gray. All at once, Isabella's fears were recalled to her. He had heard of Isabella's engagement and wished to offer me his congratulations, her father was saying. That was very kind of him, I'm sure, replied her mother. Kind? Pa! cried her father, much to everyone's surprise. His wife and daughter stared at him, waiting for him to elaborate on his exclamation. There was nothing kind about it. Oh, he was civil enough, I grant you, and his tone of voice was perfectly pleasant but the look in his eyes he checked himself he cleared his throat <clears throat> well uh, still i suppose a little bad feeling is to be expected under the circumstances all the same though i think i'm glad you decided against him my dear he said to isabella a nobler man would have been content to see her happy if he truly cared for her said maria quite right agreed her mother. Well, well, perhaps he will, once his wounded pride is healed, said Mr. Simpson. Isabella had remained silent during this exchange, and was now very pale and still. Are you quite well, my dear? asked the mother. You look dreadfully pale. I'm afraid I do feel rather unwell, Mama. If you would excuse me, I think I shall retire. Of course, my dear. She climbed warily into bed. Barely as she'd pulled the covers about her, she was asleep. But if she'd hoped that sleep would relieve her, she was to be disappointed. Her sleep was restless and disturbed. Dark, oppressive images plagued her dreams. 
she awoke to darkness. In the still silence of the night, she could just hear the hall clock striking two. She found that she shrank from the darkness. For the first time since her early childhood, she grew afraid of the dark, fearing that which dwelt therein. As she lay alone in the empty silence, it was with the thrill of indescribable horror that she felt something like a cool hand brush against her cheek. No sound or movement reached her. Whatever had touched her, in the total darkness there was nothing to tell her where it was, or what it was. She lay motionless, numb with terror. She wanted to scream out, but no sound came. She tried to throw herself from the bed, but her limbs felt heavy and unmovable. Finally, her voice broke free of whatever power had bound it, and she screamed. Oh, how she screamed. It was only a moment before the door flung open and her terrified sister stood in the doorway, bringing with her the welcome light of a candle. To the terrified Isabella, she was the very image of an angel of mercy. Maria was soon followed by their parents, for the screams had roused the whole household. With them they brought the blessed relief of further light. Maria went straight to her sister and begged to know what was wrong. Clinging desperately to Maria in great gasping sobs, Isabella tried to make the source of the terror understood. But no sooner had she stammered out her words than she became aware of it. In the flickering candlelight, one orphan shadow in the corner of the room. A shadow with nothing to cast it. It stirred, almost imperceptibly before seemingly melting away through the wall. Crying out in terror, she pointed to the corner. Oh, you see it? You see it? Oh, there he is! I know it is he! By now, the poor girl was so hysterical that all their soothing and reassurances that it was only a nightmare were of but little use. Only when Maria promised to stay with her did she at least begin to be calm again. Eventually, she was overcome with the extreme fatigue that invariably follows such a heightened degree of anxiety. She fell into a fitful slumber. Maria, however, did not sleep. Once she was sure her sister was asleep, she slipped from the bed and, taking up her candle, examined minutely the corner indicated by Isabella. Perhaps it was only suggestion, but she had fancied for a moment that she too had seen something in the corner. She ran her fingers along the wall where the shadow had been. It was strangely cold, far colder than the rest of the wall. She held her candle forward. The flame was steady. There was no hint of draught. After that night, Maria continued to sleep in her sister's room for Isabella had conceived a dread of being left alone after dark. She would often wake terrified and perspiring. In these moments, the strong impression of there being some inhuman presence in the room returned to her, and she was overwhelmed by the oppressive sense of evil all about her. The doctor prescribed a sleeping draught, but although it made her sleep, the dreadful sensations which had haunted her waking self now pervade her nightly dreams. Though her nights had taken on an unpleasant aspect, the excitement she felt at the arrangements for her upcoming marriage and the steady affections of Mr. Logan did not allow her to be wholly depressed of spirit. 
However, as time went on, these nightly horrors began to take their toll. She became nervous, and her pretty complexion became tired and careworn. Such was the concern of her family and physician that a change of air was recommended to be undertaken at the earliest opportunity. The family, therefore, removed themselves to the seaside. At first it seemed that the change of scenery had worked its cure upon her troubled mind. Every morning she would walk along the promenade with her mother and sister, and the blustery salt breeze brought back the colour to her paled cheeks. Her sleep too became easier, and at the end of the first week much of her liveliness of spirit was restored. Her mother was inclined to believe that her daughter had suffered an over-excitement of her nerves. Brought on by the preparations of her impending wedding, she held firmly to the belief that the sea air and a little healthy exercise would soon mend matters. Isabella's continued recovery seemed to bear out her assertion. At the end of the first week, her father left them for town, having business to attend to. He was to join them again at the end of the following week. Thus, freed from the burden of male company, the three ladies decided to embark on a voyage of exploration to the shops of the town, the intention being to buy wedding clothes for the party and other little necessities for Isabella's new wardrobe. They were strolling along when Maria drew her sister's attention to some item or other in one of the shop windows. Isabella turned and proffered her opinion, but as soon as she did so, she fell suddenly silent. Something else had caught her attention. Reflected in the glass, she saw the figure of John Gray watching her. She gasped, her breath catching in her throat. She turned swiftly, but to her bewilderment, she saw no sign of him. She searched the faces of each passerby, anxiously watching for that of her oppressor. But he was not there. He had vanished, melted away like a phantom, like the shadow in the corner. After her flight in town, something of Isabella's former gloom returned. Her mother had told her not to be so silly. She had been mistaken, that was all. Besides, even if she had seen Mr. Gray, it was hardly a matter of any concern to them, and certainly nothing to work oneself up over. He was entitled to a holiday by the sea, as everyone else. Was he not? What was Mr. Gray to them? Or they to him? Isabella had made her choice, and there was nothing he could do about it. Isabella remained unconvinced. Though her mother was not fond of Mr. Gray, she did not have the same horror of him, which had grown daily upon her. She was convinced that somehow, she did not know how, he was responsible for her troubles, that it was he who was behind the ominous shadow that haunted her room that night. For the evil dreams that plagued her, it was all the workings of his malice and bitter envy. On her arrival by sea, she had fulfilled a promise to her friend, Miss Jefferies, and written the young lady a letter, assuring her of her safe arrival. She gave her particulars as to their lodgings, the town, and the entertainments on offer. The morning following the incident in town, she came down to breakfast to find a reply to this letter waiting for her. It struck her when she wrote again that it might just be worth her while to inquire of her friend whether Mr. Gray were away from home at present. Only after she had dispatched the letter did she realise how futile was her inquiry. Even if he were still at home, what comfort was there in that? 
if what she suspected was true. She had, after all, sensed his presence in that strange shadow in her room, where he could not have been, at least in his person. Despite her mother's efforts, her thoughts weighed heavily on her mind. However, her father's return accomplished the revival of spirits, which all her mother's reassuring words could not, for he brought with him an unexpected person of Mr. Logan. Anxious for the health of his fiancée, he had journeyed at the earliest opportunity to call upon her. What dark thoughts could remain in the presence of that wholesome, honest countenance? His presence was like a tonic to Isabella's fragile nerves. Such was her delight at the unexpected arrival that within half an hour all thoughts of Grey were swept away. In the afternoon the party set out together to the beach. Isabella, on her fiancé's arms, felt she must be the happiest girl there. There was an amateur brass band competition taking place a little way up the beach, and the deep, cheerful melodies floating in the air delighted her. It was warm, but not hot, and the gentle sea breeze danced pleasantly about them. She sighed contently. The sense of serenity that she'd felt at that moment translated in her features to almost ethereal beauty. Mr. Logan looked upon his future bride with great admiration. They walked a little way behind the others, welcoming the chance of conversing unheeded. Do you like the seaside, dearest? He asked her. Yes, exceedingly. There is something invigorating about the sea air, is there not? Perhaps we shall take our honeymoon by the sea somewhere. Would you like that? She smiled at him warmly. It gave her such joy to think of their future happiness. I should like that very much, she answered. Oh, what a day it will be when I may call you my wife. I declare, I believe you have made me the happiest man alive, my dear Isabella. She blushed very prettily at the compliment. Their attention was drawn for a moment to the ban. As they listened, Logan was suddenly recalled to himself as he felt Isabella's hand grip upon his arm. Her fingers held him in a vice-like grip. He looked at her at surprise. To his great alarm, he saw that her face was deathly pale and her features rigid. All the former serenity gone. My dearest Isabella, whatever is the matter? It is he... I know I wasn't mistaken. It is he, I am sure. He is here. I saw him in the crowd. Only for a moment, but, but I saw him. Saw who? Mr. Gray. She turned to him and spoke in earnest tones. She poured out the whole story. She told him of all her definite fears and vague impressions. All that had led her to her current state of nerves. She held nothing back. He listened, his face growing grey. Do you think me mad? She demanded. Of course not, my darling. But only think of what you are saying, Isabella. I certainly do not trust Grey, and I think him more than capable of mischief when moved to it. But what you are suggesting, that he has some kind of supernatural power, it is absurd. These shadows are just nightmares, my darling. And how am I to account for this dreadful feeling that he's continually watching us? I have no doubt you are right to mistrust him. But it seems to me that his influence is 
natural rather than supernatural. I believe that your fear and mistrust of him has created such a strong impression that it has worked upon your nerves. That is all. Do you really think so? She said with a trace of relief in her features. I do. I pray you are right. The following morning brought her reply from Miss Jeffreys. She answered her friend's inquiry by assuring her that Mr. Gray had not left the town. She also added that he wore a very dark expression when she had seen him last and apparently given up all pretense of civility. He was, she remarked, quite changed. Isabella did not know what to make of this news. He had not left home and yet she had seen him twice since her arrival at the coast. Was it truly fancy or could this man really have some kind of extraordinary and villainous power? She suspected the latter, but if it were the case, how could she help to defend herself against such a force? If he could spy upon her wherever she was, she could have no privacy, no respite. There could never be a single moment where she could be certain that she was not under his observation. Even in the apparent safety of her room, he had shown himself capable of intrusion, by she knew not what means. She saw no release from such subtle and hideous infamy. It was with great reluctance that she bid farewell to Mr. Logan when he had to return home. But the distress at the parting was in some way mitigated by the knowledge that they too would be returning in a very few days. She felt stronger for his presence, and in the hours immediately following his departure, she cut a furlong figure. Alone in her room before dinner, she sat at her dressing table, looking sadly at her reflection. She looked tired. She felt tired. The preceding weeks had taken their toll. She sighed and picked up her necklace from the dressing table and held it to her throat. The metal was cold against her skin and she shivered as it touched her neck. The clasp was awkward and she struggled for a few moments, becoming increasingly frustrated. She contemplated finding Maria or a maid to assist her. Suddenly her frustration gave way to terror. This time it was not the touch of metal that caused her to shiver, but the touch of hands. Cold, invisible hands took the necklace from her and fastened the clasp. She sat motionless, too terrified even to scream, as she felt the phantom fingers move around her neck. She thought they meant to strangle her, but after moments of pressure they released their grip and moved downwards, coming to rest on her shoulders. She felt their evil caress, and a sensation as of a breath against her neck. Such was her terror in the moment. She would have surely fainted had not the door opened and Maria entered. The hands let go and the presence retreated. She flew into her sister's arms, sobbing wildly. She did not tell her parents of her experience. They would be sure to worry. They would convince themselves that her mind was unsound and that she was mad or hysterical. Maria was her only confidant and the only one she could trust. She knew she could keep her secret. She could not risk being deemed unfit to precede the marriage. No, she would not allow that. For she thought that whatever Gray's means of harassment, his aim was at least clear to prevent the marriage and to take possession of her. That she could not countenance. 
Though she was determined that nothing would prevent the wedding, she did harbour fears for Mr. Logan. So far, Gray's attention seemed to be on her. Though he had yet caused her no actual harm, the woman he was believed to love, what might he do to the man who stood in his way? The night of their return home, her dreams were filled with vivid and hideous visions. She dreamt of her fiancé laying dead in her arms, his eyes open in a cold, glassy stare of death. In the dream, she wore a wedding gown. It was splattered all over with his blood. The blood dripped from her hand, the wedding ring upon her finger smeared with it. Her tears fell and mingled with the pools of crimson. She awoke from her nightmarish to blue, cold and perspiring, in the early dawn. In her agony, she cried aloud for deliverance. Maria stirred beside her, blinking and confused. She sat up and inquired with great concern whether her sister had suffered another nightmare. Isabel fell into her sister's shoulders, sobbing. When at last Maria could make sense of her sister's broken speech, she grew very grave. To Isabella's great comfort, she did not dismiss her fears as fancy or the dreams of an overactive and excitable imagination. For a moment, Maria had hesitated, unsure whether her sister's state of mind would be better or worse for her confessing for her own misgivings. In the end, she decided that Isabella would take more comfort from knowing herself to be believed and understood than she would from insincere reassurances. So she told of her own experiences on the night of the first alarm, how she too felt with an indescribable sense that there was something at work that she did not understand. Indeed, Maria could not accept their parents' casual dismissal of the situation. Isabella was not of a flighty or fanciful disposition. She was in fact just the opposite. Of the sisters, Isabella had always been the more level-headed and rational of the two, but both were sensible girls. The sisters expected and preferred adventures to take place only within the pages of books. When the cover was closed, they expected them to remain where they were and not to trouble everyday business of their lives. Now, here they were, at the very centre of some macabre and grotesque mystery. They decided that come the morning proper, they would pay a visit to the church. As soon as breakfast was over, they went out. Though they were greatly afraid of seeing Mr. Gray, they walked on with purpose. The vicar received them warmly and with great cordiality. Isabella told him something of her plight, of the dreams, and of the sense of oppression, but she did not tell him all that she might have done. Her confidences were vague, and she never mentioned Mr. Gray, nor the power he had over her. Vicar spoke comforting words and promised prayers. There was little advice he could give her other than to pray and believe God would deliver her. So she prayed, and Maria prayed. That afternoon, Isabella and Maria set out together to walk over to the hall to take tea with Miss Jeffreys. The most direct route which they were accustomed to take was via a small plantation which lay between the two houses. There was a gate on one side opening into the Simpsons garden and one on the other which opened onto the driveway of the hall. 
As they approached the hall gate, they saw something moving amongst the trees. Isabella's heart leapt. Was it grey? The sisters clung to each other, expecting the worst. Then the source of the movement became clear as a young girl stepped into view from behind the trees. Isabella almost laughed aloud with relief. The child smiled at them. Such was the warmth and innocence of the girl's expression that the sisters could not help but return her smile. She was dressed simply but neatly, and Isabella thought she was perhaps the daughter of one of the servants at the hall. She could not recall ever having seen the child in the town, which seemed strange for such a small community. Of course, it was possible her family were new to the town or only visiting. They walked forward towards the gate. When they came up beside the girl, Isabella stopped to speak with her. You gave us quite a start, child. The child bobbed politely. I'm very sorry, ma'am. That's all right. I'm afraid we're interrupting your play, she said kindly. No, ma'am, I wasn't playing. I'm on an errand. Oh, I see. Then we mustn't keep you. The child looked at her very curiously and then said, There's a shadow on your back, ma'am. They do not see it, but it is there. Can you feel it? Isabella stumbled back a step, shocked by the child's words. She heard herself responding as though across a great distance. The words came unbidden by her. Yes, I do. There is danger. The child reached into a pocket of her dress and removed an object, which shone as it caught the light. She held out her hand to Isabella with the object lying on an open palm. It was a silver disc about the size of a florin with a single hole near the edge. Gemstones in a rainbow of colours formed the shape of an eye on the surface of the disc. The stones winked in the afternoon sun. There was almost a mesmeric air about the object. The child spoke again. Take this Hamlet and give it to the one you love. It'll shield him from harm. Hamlet? Yes, it will protect him. Those who seek to commit evil against him will find it turned back upon themselves. Take it. Isabella looked at the disc curiously from the girl. It was cold and it seemed to admit the mere suggestion of a vibration through her hand. For a moment she wondered if this was a trick by Grey to bring some evil upon them. But such was the feeling of love and protection that she felt from the amulet and the mysterious child that she dismissed the thought at once. Thank you, she said, but you must let me pay for it. How much? She reached into her purse and with the help of Maria, for her hands were shaking badly, she managed to produce a handful of coins for the child. Unsure how much such an item might be worth, the sisters looked up expecting the child's response. They were amazed to see she had gone. But where had she gone? There was no sound or movement against the trees. And though they searched for some time, they could find no trace of the girl. Much perplexed, they continued on to the hall. Over tea, the sisters made inquiries as to whether Miss Jeffreys knew who the child might be. They did not mention the amulet. They would have liked to find the girl and give her some remuneration, but Miss Jeffreys did not know. There are several children in the estate who might easily match such a description. There was little more they could do but hope to meet the child again in the plantation or in the street. The evening brought Mr. Logan to them. Though the young couple were, of course, pleased to see each other, 
the young man was not in his usual humour. When they inquired as to whether something was the matter, he gave this account. I'm afraid I've had a rather trying time of it since I saw you last. It began when I was on my way home from the coast. I was waiting on the platform when I felt a sudden force at my back, as though someone had pushed me. I nearly fell onto the rails just as the train was coming in. If it had not been for the man beside me grabbing me, I would have fallen. I looked about me, but in the crowd it was impossible to see who it might have been. It must have been an accident, of course. Isabella was greatly alarmed to hear this tale. It seemed all her fears were coming to pass. Her father spoke. Extraordinary business. But you say that's when it began. There is more to tell, then? Yes, I'm afraid so. The train journey itself was uneventful, and I reached my destination unharmed. It was when I was on my way back home from the railway station that the next incident occurred. I was halfway back to town when suddenly the horses stopped dead and reared up violently. It was all my driver could do to prevent them from bolting and overturning us. It was lucky for us that we were not traveling at any great speed when the alarm occurred, or the damage might have been far worse. Jones, my driver, had all on to calm the beasts. He said something must have frightened them. We thought perhaps some animal had run in front of them and startled them, but but Jones had seen nothing, and we found nothing. Well, Mr. Simpson said, Horses can be skittish and take alarm at a little thing like a sudden noise or a shadow in a lonely spot. Isabella shuddered. I expect you are right. All the same, they were more than nervous. The poor creature seemed absolutely terrified. It was a good fifteen minutes before we could persuade them to pass the spot. Jones was inclined to believe the place must be haunted. (laughs) He laughed at the idea of this. I told him not to be a fool. Besides, I've never heard of such a thing as a ghost on that stretch of road. Indeed not, said Mr. Simpson. But it didn't end there. That night I nearly dropped a lamp and set the house alight. Then the following morning I tripped on the stairs going down to breakfast and sprained my ankle. Then I almost choked on my food. The list goes on. I really have had the most extraordinary run of bad luck. Maria stole a sideways look at her sister. Dear me, she said, you seem to have had a very bad time of it, sir. Indeed, but I suppose these things are sent to try us. Still, no harm done. Isabella did her best for the rest of the evening to betray a lightness of spirit which she did not feel. When Mr. Logan rose to leave them, she went to see him out. Once they were in the hall, she detained him for a moment. There is something I wish you to have, she said. Oh, a present, is it? He said, smiling broadly. Yes, it's just a small token, but it would mean so much to me if you would take it. How could I refuse you anything, my dearest? You flatter me, sir, she said shyly, then holding out her hand to present him with the amulet. Hello, what's this? It's a rather unusual piece, isn't it? Very skillfully done. In this light, it almost looks like a real eye. Apart from the colors, of course. What a strange illusion. I was told it was a kind of good luck charm. Well, after the last few days, I could certainly use a little of that. Then you will keep it? I shall keep it with me always, to remind me of you. 
she made a silent prayer that the amulet would keep him safe. The days passed and the frequency and severity of the unfortunate incidents which had dogged Mr. Logan decreased until it seemed his run of bad luck had finally ended. But the evil influence which had exerted itself was not yet finished with that young man. Two days before the wedding, the Simpsons were to dine with Mr. Logan at his residence. The evening being a pleasant one, they had their driver drop them at the bottom of the drive and they walked up to the house. In the early evening shadows, they saw a figure standing before the house. As they came closer, they could see that it was their host. Then, they saw some movement from another quarter. Something stirred in the bushes beside the house. The movement became more distinct. In a moment, one of the shadows cast by the bushes seemed to detach itself from the rest. It grew strangely and seemed to reshape and reform until it was something akin to the shape of a man. The party on the drive had stopped in their tracks, halted by the sudden dread of what they were seeing. Their host stood with his back to the bushes, apparently unaware of the unfolding horror behind him and the danger in which he lay. Something must have alerted him, however, for in an instant he had turned and was now face to face with the formidable shadow. The ghastly apparition reached out a hand towards the throat of the victim. Logan began to choke. The shadow hurled him against the wall, all while tightening its diabolical grip upon him. Isabella screamed. The spell that held the family was shattered, and they were running, running with all their strength to reach the unfortunate man. Mrs. Simpson flew into the house to get help. Mr. Simpson sought to pull Logan from the grip of the monstrous aggressor. Then, some unseen force flung Mr. Simpson back. He fell unconscious at his daughter's feet. They quickly stooped down to attend to him. Isabella looked up to where her fiancé was struggling with the shadow. Logan's face was red and his resistance becoming weaker. Look! She cried out and pointed towards them. Her father, who had by this time come around, and Maria stared in amazement. The shadow's grip loosened. Then Isabella noticed it. The amulet she had given him was hanging from Logan's watch chain. It had seemed somehow to be drawing the shadow to it. More than that, the shadow was diminishing, draining away into the amulet. Finally, the shadow faded to nothing, and Logan crumpled to the ground, breathless and exhausted. Isabella rushed to his aid. By this time, Mrs. Simpson had returned with the servants. Brandy was administered and a doctor sent for. In a very short while, Logan was sufficiently recovered that he was able to sit up and speak. He rubbed his throat. How am I to account for this? He asked hoarsely. I cannot understand it. There was such a sense of malice in the thing, whatever it was. Mr. Gray, whispered Isabella. Logan's eyes widened. The shadow in your room? Can it really be? I believe it is he who has been persecuting us both all this time. He is wickedly jealous. But if it truly is Grey who is behind all our troubles, then how did he manage it? That's what I don't understand. What was that thing? I do not know, but you are safe now and that's all that matters. But will he try again? I do not think so. It is odd, but I feel suddenly free... 
as though his power over us is gone. Then a thought occurred to her. The amulet, she cried. Amulet? Oh, you mean the charm you gave me? Yes, I thought you might think a good luck token sounded less fanciful than an amulet. But you see, I was terribly afraid for you. My poor Isabella, I should never have doubted your instincts. I promise that when we are married, I shall be a wiser man. Now, let's have a look at it. Good heavens! What is it? Look! He took the amulet from his watch chain and handed it to her. The gemstones which formed the image of the eye had changed colour. No longer did they shine with the colours of a rainbow. Instead, they were now a glistening and brilliant black. It remains only for the sequel to this strange tale to be told. News reached them the following day that Mr. Gray's valet, on entering his master's room that morning, had discovered him sitting, fully clothed at his desk, cold and dead. He had evidently died sometime the previous evening. It seemed he had retired early to his room, having given the servant the night off, and so was alone at the time of death. There were signs of blood about the nose of the dead man, and the doctor suspected a hemorrhage. Mr. Logan and the Simpsons had their own ideas about what had caused the unexpected death, but they kept that to themselves. Amongst the late Gray's possessions were found a good many books that the God-fearing people of the town thought very questionable and entirely unwholesome. No further elaboration could be made on this point. For as soon as they could, those same God-fearing locals saw it that the books were burned. Cleansed by fire, as they put it. The wedding of Mr. Logan and Isabella Simpson went ahead with no further impediment. They still possessed a blackened amulet, and perhaps one day they would tell their children of how they came to have it. But to this day, no trace they have ever found of the mysterious child who was the means of their deliverance. (laughs) Thanks for tuning in for today's episode of The Wicked Library. Stay tuned for a short interview with the author after these brief credits. The Wicked Library is created and shared for free, but there are costs involved in its production. The Wicked Library now has a Patreon account. Head on over to thewickedlibrary.com for more details and to support the show you love. We really do count on your support in order to make the show possible. The Wicked Library is sponsored by the Legends, Myths, and Whiskey podcast, brought to you by a team of storytellers and whiskey lovers. They bring culture to life through storytelling every week. You can find them over at legendsmythsandwhiskey.com. You can, of course, also find them in iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. They also have a production of Beowulf, fully scored with music by someone those who are fans of the Wicked Library would be familiar with, Nico Viteze. Find links in the show notes or head on over to legendsmythsandwhiskey.com to find out more. The Wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production. Ninthstory.com All audio recorded in-house at Ninth Story Studios is recorded on Rode microphones. Find out more information about the great products over at Rode.com. That's R-O-D-E dot com. And big thanks to Rode 
for helping us make this show possible. Complete show notes, including credits for music, art, story, and narration can be found at thewickedlibrary.com by clicking on the appropriate episode number. You can also find a link to our Twitter account, our Facebook page, and a link to rate and review the show in iTunes. Reviews mean a lot to us. Please let us know what you think of the show. And now, our interview with the author. There she is. Hello. Hello. How are you today? Not bad, thank you. Well, that's good. So today, my guest is KB Goddard, who is the author of today's fantastic story, Shadows. Uh, we've had you on the show once before, and you're back again for another spooky tale that everybody who has heard it so far has said, oh, my gosh, that's so good. Oh, that's very nice. Thank you. Yeah. And Those people think. <laughs> <laughs> well, the first is the narrator. Uh, one of the things that I'm doing a little different for this season of the Wicked Library is I have guest narrators that are coming in and doing some of the stories. And not that I couldn't have done this one justice if I had tried, but it's very uh, a very female-driven story. It's it's a very much uh, Isabella's story. So I wanted to have uh, a voice actress come in who could kind of embody that. And I think I sent you a short sample of that, but that's Amber Collins, who is also the voice of Victoria in The Lift. But the thing with her is she doesn't really get a chance, at least for me, to use her real voice very often. So I thought it would be fun to give her a story where she gets to use her, her real voice. I think it fit the piece really well. Yeah, I mean, I've only heard a little clip so far. I'm looking forward to hearing her reading the whole thing because it's, um, as you say, she's got, she's got the, the brilliant voice. So I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing the whole thing. Yeah. And fans of The Lift may notice that we, uh, we gave, I know it wasn't written that way initially, but we gave Victoria a little walk-on role in the, in the story. There, there is a little girl. There is a little girl appears. Yes. You have the very mysterious little girl that just kind of shows up, gives her what she needs and vanishes into thin air. And uh, Amber and being, you know, the one that does the voice of Victoria, the two of us talked and we're like, you know what? This would be a fun little spot to just throw Victoria in and let her play that role. Um, and fans of both shows will get it. And other people who haven't listened to both shows won't get it, but it'll still work. Yeah. Vic Victoria's uh She's a, she's ever present. <laughs> Indeed she, she is. She's popping up everywhere. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, we, we talked about it. I was like, I could kind of see her doing something like that. Uh, so yeah, why not? Let's just do that. Yeah, um, you've got a mysterious child. Who are you going to call on? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so shadows is a great tale. It's, um, it's very representative. I think of, of the type of fiction that you write, because you write the mock Victorian fiction, which mm -hmm. I'm absolutely in love with. I find the, the way that you write and the stories that you tell and, the ones that you pick to tell, uh, very enthralling. And uh, I think that, you know, fans of, of horror should hear all different types of horror and find what works for them. And, and you know, I'm a fan of multiple types, but I definitely love the, the, the way that this feels like it harkens back to another time. Obviously, you've succeeded in that. But it also Thank contains you. all those really important elements of horror where, you know, you have the 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 scares you have the dread you have a lot of these the ghosts you know you have a lot of these elements that everybody goes into it thinking well everything's fine but wait now something's going on that's different oh thank you yeah I like to get that kind of I'm I'm not one for the sort of lots of blood and guts type of horror I like I like that kind of um, 
the mysterious, the spooky, that sort of, as you say, a kind of a, a step out of reality mm-hmm. where there's just one thing that's kind of off. And though it's, it's, you know, set, setting that sort of quite middle-class kind of idealistic Victorian. See, not all of Victoriana was like that. If you were a middle-class man, it was great. Everybody else, it was a bit... Yeah. <laughs> a bit of a challenging era. So so I kind of wanted to go down that that route with, the, like, the female perspective for a change because my others have been quite... Most of them have been quite male-orientated. So mm-hmm. the newer book has a little bit more of that kind of female perspective and the marriage market sort of playing a bit more of a role... Yeah, it's very interesting because a lot I think and I think it's important that we don't forget what that time was like for women because women's rights have come such a long way to what they are today and when we read these kinds of stories I think modern readers sometimes kind of go, "Oh my god, is that what it was really like?" But again, it's really important we don't forget that it was that way because as we all know and and as it's been said many times, those who don't understand their history are doomed to repeat it. Exactly. Yeah, my my other stories, I was conscious that they had been, in some respects, quite, apart from, obviously, the ghosts changing people around and things, it's obviously, it's been quite idealistic, and obviously the Victorian era wasn't always like that for everybody, so I kind of wanted to, there's kind of this sense of ownership of, of women, to some extent, in, right. in this story, and that kind of, they're quite dismissed, mm-hmm. you know, people aren't really listening, they're like, yeah, something's going on here, and nobody's listening. Yeah. <laughs> it's not till right at the end, and he's like, should have listened. Exactly. <laughs> no, I really enjoyed uh, the scene with the sisters when they're they're sitting on the bed talking about, you know, kind of what's going on, and the challenges that they're facing with Grey coming in, and and they're just kind of laughing at, well, men are just silly. They're going to think that, you know, we're silly because we're just women, but we know what's actually going on. So little scenes like that I thought were really cool. Yeah, I set it up that she was like, she was sort of almost intuitive. She knew there was something wrong, but obviously if a woman had said that back there, like I think there's something supernatural going on here, it'd be like a case of, oh, well, hysterical clearly lock her up right you know she didn't want to be put away as a lunatic for saying what she thought was going on yeah yeah Uh, and she has um you know she has a great father in this where he's he's like well i'm not a tyrant i'm not going to force you to get married but the fact is that there were a lot of fathers that were they didn't think they were tyrants if they said well you must marry this man yeah i mean in in this case obviously i could have gone down that road but I'd actually I've been reading quite a bit of Jane Austen when I wrote that one and my mm-hmm. sister said the beginning actually came out <laughs> a little bit like a Jane Austen meets M.R. James type of thing yeah. because I, 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 I suppose I had Mr. Bennett in my mind a little bit when I was writing The Father and he's quite he's quite jovial and a bit like oh god what's going on all these women I don't know what's happening <laughs> <laughs> he's a little more tolerant a little more yeah, educated as much of a tyrant he was just like oh, I don't know what's going on I'll yeah. You know, they'll sort it out for themselves. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, later in the story, he kind of comes around to Isabella's way of thinking. And he's like, you know, I'm, I'm very glad that you did not pick him because obviously he's got a sour puss on his face and uh, <laughs> there's some bad stuff brewing. Yeah, he was he was sort of a bit of a, a comic relief at the beginning. But then he's like, well, maybe there is more to this than just you know, marrying her off to the richest suitor, you know. Right. Maybe there is a little bit more than that. He's, he's a bit of light relief, but he's not sort of the tyrannical father. So we, I didn't go down that route because I figured that um, I set her up with the 
you know, for the for the jealousy. She had she got the good suitor, she got the good guy, she got the bad guy. Yeah. And then there's this sort of evil jealousy going on in the background. Right, right. And you got Gray who's who's creepy because he's sneaking into her room and not only is he doing that, but then he's trying to go after her suitor. So he's just an yeah, all around bad guy. Right this is actually kind of creepy that he's in her bedroom, you know, and I figure in a sort of Victorian setting, that's even more kind of taboo. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that would be pretty freaky to happen to you now. <laughs> yeah. Back, I mean, back then when they're also, when they were so buttoned up and proper and like, it's like, how do I say that I've seen this man in my bedroom? Right. It's almost got yeah. kind of a Dracula fill, you know, whenever, whenever Dracula's sneaking into the bedroom at night to try to seduce her. Yes, there was, was definitely a sort of, it, it felt a little bit gothic-y. Yes. In that kind of. It's a great villain. You did a great job with that. Thank you. <laughs> so I know the writing process is, for all of us, different, um, but everybody struggles at certain points. And I was just curious if you had any struggles with this tale, putting it together, and if so, what they were. I did, yes. I wasn't entirely sure. I couldn't work out how I really wanted to get the amulet to her mm-hmm. because in the Victorian era, it was like I had to work out a way as well for her to sort of confide in her fiance. Mm-hmm. But obviously there, you've got kind of restrictions with the Victorian era about where she would have been alone or where, how she could have spoken to her fiance alone without other people around. Cause there's all this Victorian propriety. So I did, I did have some sort of, trying to work out how to get the amulet to her and how to let them have a conversation without being in a room with everybody else. And there was, yeah, so there, there's always sort of historical challenges. See, that's a great point. And, and I think it's something that a lot of writers that write modern fiction probably don't think about because, you know, for a man and a woman to be off to the side innocently together is not considered that big of a deal today. But that's, that's a really good point with this being set in that era and following uh, the rules of, of Victorian society and Victorian writing, you did have a bit of a challenge there. So that's, yeah, uh, was, that's uh, great. That's why I settled on the beach because it's a sort of typical Victorian holiday type thing and they can all be there, but they don't have to be sort of all within earshot. So they can be, you know, right. a little bit more freedom. So I settled on I settled on the beach. Yeah, kind of a public setting where it's okay for them to have some distance between them and everybody else. Plus, and then obviously it gives her that chance of, seeing something in the crowd as well yes yeah very good potential (laughs) (laughs) so how many drafts did this story take you do you remember um i'm terrible i'm not uh (laughs) i don't tend to go right one draft and another one i'm one of those who edits a bit as i go along you write the same way i do then yeah quite often i'll have like a gap between writing and i'll come back and go right i need to recap where i was because i can't remember what i've already done so i'll go back <laughs> and have a look at it like oh well that's rubbish i'll fix that and so i end up with sort of half versions of drafts and yeah i tend to pick at it as i go yeah. <laughs> which i know they always say you're not supposed to do that you shouldn't finish the story then edit it but <laughs> I, I don't work like that, don't work yeah, like that. there are a few of us that, that are like that uh you're in good co- <laughs> dean Koontz writes the same way from what i'm told and what i've read too so and he's a rather rather big name in horror fiction so it, it works you know for you sure, know. Whatever, whatever works for you that's what <laughs> exactly I mean, I've tried the outlining thing and I do sometimes, you know, stop and take some notes on the side. And but I do find that my best work is whenever I kind of power through it. And, you know, if I'm if as I'm going, if I change my mind, I, I have to hop back a few paragraphs and try to make everything consistent. Um, 
but you know, and then you have the second where you have somebody read it and you go back through and polish, but much like you, that's the way that I, I kind of write is fix it while I'm there because otherwise it's hard for me to move forward. Yeah. Sometimes find if you, if you make a change and they think, well, well, if I leave it till after I finish the draft and go back and do the earlier bits, I might forget. And then they end up with like these inconsistencies. So it's, <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, if I go back and fix it now, while I remember, right. <laughs> I'll save myself a lot of trouble later. So you've been busy this year. Um, not only, not only have you, you, you put out your book towards the end of last year. Is that right? It was last last Halloween. Yes. Last Halloween. So yeah, almost a year. And and since then, you've been working on some other projects. I know you're taking some classes as well. But you have an upcoming episode of the Lift that uh, is our sister podcast that folks should know about. Uh, and that's oh, yeah. called that is our season premiere episode. We have our Halloween special coming up at the end of October, and then you'll have the first story of the season uh, come mid November called the Lost Library very exciting it's my my first my first lift episode and it's wonderful you know i I don't want to give too much away because obviously we're about well not quite a month away but close to a month away from it actually coming out but i thought maybe we'd talk a little bit about this the structure of the story itself and and some of the interesting choices i thought you made uh because you you typically write victorian fiction and i guess this takes place really as in, in in the edwardian era which is right after Victorian. So you're already starting to see some changes, but they're still holding on to some values. Um, yeah, it, it's still very much, again, um, there's a little bit of the marriage market pops up because that's obviously something that's been ever present for women. So I got a bit feminist this year with the writing, I think. Um, yeah, so, so again, I've sort of explored the female angle for the lift, but... Uh, but yeah. yeah, it's sort of 1920s feel this time. I've gone a bit more. I've, I've left Conan Doyle and gone a bit Agatha Christie. Yes, and, and I <laughs> and I that's the first thing I thought of when I read through the entire piece. I was like, this has a very Agatha Christie feel to it. Which no uh, murders though. I haven't murdered anybody. <laughs> <laughs> or have you? No. Uh, yeah, you're right. No mur- No murders in that. Just uh, a very well written piece that talks about the journey of uh, a young woman who is kind of torn between two destinies. One where she wants to pursue. Uh, a career of her own and be a writer and the other where she's following kind of the old ideals of her father who wants her to marry a wealthy man and settle down and produce children. Um, So I think that that's, is is that kind of right where the cusp of the the transition occurred? Because I know it's not until the late sixties where we really truly get women's liberation, but I, I think right around the time of after the war was some of those values were starting to change a little bit. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, the, World War One certainly did change things to some degree. I would say. Um, obviously, I'm not a historical expert, but right. uh, amateur historian. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it, um, it it did change things to to some degree because obviously women had to go out into the factories and things, right. while the men were on the front line. So it was a case of, I think it was quite a difficult time for women to have to slot back into those traditional roles when the men came home so for that sort of era yeah to have all that freedom to move around and 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 basically have a career and and that sort of thing I think women got a taste of that and said you know this is kind of cool we've been missing this and you know I kind of like having my own path and and leading my own destiny yeah and then of course the women were starting to you hear about women like when you watch Downton Abbey and things like that. People love that kind of exploration of that era. Yeah. When women were starting to go, well, you know, 
I want to I want to start having a career or I or women started moving out in the 20s and 30s and getting their own flats and things and flat right. sharing as opposed to staying at home until they got married so it was yeah it was kind of a I say that sort of world war the end of world war one kind of changed things for a lot of people it's really cool uh very good story I know if you, uh, you know people will enjoy it and it's something to look forward to as we as we move into November but uh that one is also narrated by the same voice actress so Amber will be providing the voice of uh the young lady in the story, as well as the voice of Victoria. So you got two from her this, this, uh, I got, I got two. I'll keep it. I'll keep it a busy. <laughs> yeah. And then you're going to have the same composer on both stories as well. He's a countryman of yours, Tom Rory Parsons. And, uh, he's done some other podcasts, including one of my favorites, uh, the small town horror podcast. And, uh, that's actually kind of how I met him because I became friends with the creator of that show. And, uh, Tom has stepped into, uh, take care of the some of the episodes of the Wicked Library, and he's also working on some of the episodes of The Lift this season. And it so happened that he got to work on both of those stories, and and that was the first thing that he said. He's like, I love these stories; these are so well written. So, and Amber <laughs> oh, said the same thing, and so did I, and so did Cindy. So, kudos to you; you you've impressed everybody. You're also nice. <laughs> <laughs> Now, where does Shadows come from? You have uh, uh, several collections out. You have uh, 12 Ghostly Tales. Um, yeah, 12, 12 Ghostly Tales is basically the like the paperback. It's like a combined edition of the of the two e-books. Oh, uh, okay. Gotcha. So you had, uh, what, the, the Haunted Chamber and yeah, the Spirited Evening? Yeah, we got the Haunted Chamber and other stories and the Spirited Evening and other stories. Okay. And then the twelve ghostly tales is a combination of those two. Then it is, yeah. I put like a put them together as a as a paperback collection because I know not everybody's into ebooks, and the, especially in the sort of the ghost stories, people tend to quite like yeah the paperback editions. So uh, yeah, so I put that out for them for the for the paperback fans. Well, that's awesome. <laughs> that's awesome because I own both of the other two, so um, that makes sense to to have the the paperback version as well. Very nice. Yeah, I know, I know there's a lot of people who are, never really got into sort of ebooks. I know it's not not everyone's cup of tea. Yeah, it's. I mean, I like both. It's I mean, a British expression, isn't it? Yeah, and <laughs> well, we've we've adopted that. I, everybody knows what that means over here too. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's nice because I I like the ebook in that it's so portable and it's so quick. If I run out of something to read. I can quickly order something else through it and, and get it pretty much immediately. But there is something about the heft of, of a good book and just the, the experience of turning the page that can't be replicated on an electronic device in the same way. The smell of the ink. Right. The risk of quoting Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So books should be smelly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is a certain, especially like if you go to the library and you get an old book that's been there for ages and ages and, you know, maybe no one has touched it in the last 10 years. And you get that crackle and the, the, the smell immediately. You know, every book kind of has its own smell. And uh, it's, it's, that's part of the fun of the experience, I think. At least what I remember as growing up, that was one of my favorite things was, you know, when you crack that cover open and you get that certain smell of that book. Exactly. Book smell. <laughs> Indeed. Such a weird thing to say, I suppose, isn't it? <laughs> I like the smell of a book. I don't care what's in it. I just like the smell of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it helps if it's well written, but yes, absolutely. It does help, it does help if it's well written. <laughs> yeah, libraries, too, have you know a particular smell, too. 
um, not a bad one, a good one. You know, I mean, there's there's just something to books, and I think that that's probably just at least for our generation and and the generation that is not quite the millennials that there's just and by our I mean my I know you're much younger than I am. Um, just growing up and and being in libraries and being around books and everything, it, it has a certain nostalgic feel to it whenever you get that experience it does I, I love actual books the only reason i went down the kindle route myself is because <laughs> i ran out of room I'm, yeah. I'm suffocating in books here oh i know i i moved a friend probably about five or six years ago and i had just gotten a kindle at that point and i was like dude you need to get a kindle because these things are heavy and he's a book collector like I was, and I think we moved at least 40 boxes full of books. And I'm like, every one I would pick up, I'm like, are there bricks in here? Holy God. <laughs> yeah, my father suggested I get rid of some books. Well, if you've read them, why don't you get rid of them? It's like, I'm insane. Yeah, you, you, you <laughs> never know when books. you might pick it back up again, right? <clears throat> get rid of books? What's wrong with you? <laughs> That's right. They're beautiful. I like to look at them. <laughs> exactly. You get ones with pretty covers. So when you finish them, you can put them on the shelf. That's right. Exactly right. <laughs> So what has been uh, your inspiration lately? I, I know that, again, we talked last season for your story, but have there been any significant changes to uh, the way that you write and your style and, and just kind of, I mean, obviously we all grow as writers the more we write, but has there been anything that's changed for you recently that you feel has really impacted your writing? Um, well, it's getting longer. <laughs> Yeah. I always used to think that there's no way I'd be able to write a novel because um, trying to come up with an idea that's big enough because sometimes you see novels that you're thinking this really should have been a novella. You could have cut half of this out, you know. <laughs> right. There's only enough content here for half of this. But I didn't want to write – I never wanted to write a book like that, you know, that was that was dragging on. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but, yeah, I started writing this short story recently and it uh, it sort of turned into a novella length. So – so it's getting it's getting longer i've got a little bit more gothic this time i think as well with the one that's in progress nice Uh, so hopefully there'll be a novella out at some point very in the foreseeable future so yeah i think i've sort of got a little bit more gothic and a bit longer this time so it's an experiment we'll we'll see how it goes (laughs) that's kind of funny yeah i I think it was um and i'm sure other authors have said this too but i know neil gaiman said that a story will tell you what length it wants to be. You know, you sit down exactly. and you, you're trying to write a short story and it there very quickly becomes a novella. And then you realize it's not a novella. It's actually a novel. And then you realize it's not just a novel. This is an epic. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I have not had that fun experience yet, but I'm sure it's down the road. The more you write, you know, the more your yeah, characters I'm, I'm speak so, to I'm you. Not novel length yet. Yeah. So that's hopefully one, one day. <laughs> um, but I, I still love, Short stories definitely work, sort of for ghost stories. Mm-hmm. The the short ones tend to work better. I think sometimes if you, it, it's very difficult. Not that it's never been done, but it's quite difficult to get a a decent ghost story that's sort of novel length, because you're kind of trying to hold that suspense for right. that amount of time and that sort of element of mystery. Right. I think that's quite, that's quite difficult for a, for a novel length. So that that's a challenge for the future. I would like to to crack that one. But. Yeah, it's and I agree with you because there's there's something about a really good ghost story where if you shine too much light on things, the phantom disappears and it it then starts to feel like everything falls apart. Um, ghost stories are really, I think, 
kind of like a, a good joke. You know, I mean, there's there's a beginning, there's a middle and an end, an end and a punchline. And, and kind of everything has to balance perfectly for it to maintain that level of fear and suspense. So Exactly. I mean, I can't imagine anyone listening to M.R. James reading his stories at Christmas and saying, you know what, this would be much better if it was a novel. Right. You just wouldn't. <laughs> Tell me more. Perfect. perfect. <laughs> it's not nearly long enough. Can you elaborate? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Nobody would have dreamt of it because they were just, they were perfect. And it's, it seems like a Christmas carol. Mm-hmm. You know, which is slightly longer than that kind of one. But if that had been pulled out into a full-length novel, again, you would have that suspension of disbelief. You kind of were lost it. It wouldn't have worked. Right. So the story, the story really needs to be its own length. And I think a lot of times people feel that they need to write because novels are what sell. People feel they need to write something longer because nobody wants it if it's shorter. And yeah. So championing the short ghost story. Well, that's, that's that's what we try to do here at the Wicked Library is is, is champion the short story and make sure people realize that a, a great short story is definitely worth your time and a listen. Not that there aren't great novels and longer works out there, novellas and and such, but the short story is just, a, I think, a beautiful art form. And it's it's it, at one point in time, Stephen King had said that he thought it was becoming a lost art, but I've actually seen kind of a resurgence in the interest in the short story, uh, especially with a lot of the audio dramas that are out there that have become popular and just that episodic, it starts here, it ends here type of thing. And then a lot of the audio dramas are actually longer stories, but they're written in such a way that if you hear one episode and you never hear another one for whatever reason, you could still be satisfied with that one story. Yeah. I mean, audio dramas are great, especially when things like BBC's iPlayer and things where you can go on, you can listen to old, radio dramas and they'll repeat mm-hmm. ones from years ago and it's, you can listen to ghost stories and, and there's something something quite nice about being able to sit back and listen to a short ghost story being read on the radio yeah. by a professional it's like ooh exactly. which is why the wicked, that's why the Wicked Library is so great because you've got that sort of you've got that hit and it's like you've got it's all new writers that you're you're coming to for the first time maybe yeah. as opposed to just established ones that you can to get on you know like places like the BBC and that which are great right. but so you don't get as many new writers coming through, which is yeah, which is why we like the Wicked Library and the Lift. Oh, well, how kind of you! That's now, now I'm going to feel embarrassed and blush. Um, we do our best. We 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 try to get uh, you know notice for the authors out there that maybe not every author has the opportunity to have an audio version of their work done. So that's one of the things that we're kind of proud to do. And this season, that's you know taking it to the next level. I always like to keep things fresh and new. So that's why the, the guest narrators this season to kind of spice things up and uh, make things a little bit different because not only do I think that with the art, whenever we started using multiple artists that I can find the perfect artist for the perfect story match. Now I can kind of find the perfect voice for the perfect story match, which it doesn't all have to be me. Um, I'm not that big headed about it, but it's, it's fun to do the ones that I do and it's, it's fun to have, uh, kind of a stable of narrators now that I can work with as well to give the right voice to the story. Yeah, you get to kind of explore the, the female voice a little bit more as well. Yes. Is. So what are some of the things that you've been, been reading lately? I know that you're you're taking some classes, but what are some of the things that you've been reading lately that are fueling the creative fire for you? Um, I'm Actually, I haven't had an awful lot of time for reading because my course has been keeping me busy, but I've... Um, I've been, I've been reading uh, Greek Greek mythology. <laughs> Very my, nice. So I've been dabbling in that. 
catch it. I've had a damn brown on my shelf for ages. I've had the lost symbol for since it came out, and I've only just got around to reading that. Nice. <laughs> Very good. Uh, I've actually been reading a little bit of young adult fiction. Oh, nice. There's some really great authors in that genre these days. Yeah, I can't. Uh, Carlos Ruiz Zafon, I think his name is. The name sounds very familiar. I think I know who you're he's, talking about. Yeah, he's a Spanish writer, but yeah, there's a couple of really great. There's reviews on my blog. I reviewed it on my blog. Oh, nice. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's kind of like young adult, but kind of gothic. It's got mm-hmm. that that kind of feel. So it's. I'm all for anything that's bringing teenagers into the sort of the gothic right. horror soul. That's uh, so I'm all for that. So yes. Well, that's good. I mean, you know, it's I know it's tough whenever you're you're in the middle of classes and writing your own stuff and everything. But uh, it's nice to hear that the Greek mythology, is especially. I mean, I think that that's something that everybody should read because there's just a different way that they would tell the stories, and I think that that can definitely help and inspire modern storytelling. Definitely. I love, uh, and I, there's, a, there's a section coming up at some point, I think, about uh, Pygmalion and how how that story sort of filtered into things like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and later stories and things like that. So it's just, it's just a great, it's like a treasure trove of stories, really. Mm-hmm. You can just go in there and take elements from it. Yes. They, they've covered the lot. They've covered the whole human gambit. <laughs> oh, definitely. Definitely. Very good stuff. So I thought maybe we'd talk a little bit about uh, quickly the uh, the stuff that you've done for Shadows at the Door, which uh, I was involved in, am involved in, in, in doing narration. And um, also the uh, I wrote a story for the collection as well. Uh, and that's coming out in November, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, November the 19th, I think. Yeah, I think you're correct. <laughs> So you wrote a story for that that uh, I really I got to narrate and it was a lot of fun to do. It's um it's a little it takes place a little earlier than most of your other stuff. Yes, um, it's, I've still gone for the the Victorian era with this one. It still okay. Yeah, <laughs> does it does it sound like it's earlier? <laughs> Maybe it's just because of the uh, the well dressing tradition, which to me seems very medieval. But I know it goes back a long time for that tradition. Yes, there are. Um, no one seems to be entirely certain where it came from, but there's kind of this. Um, it's suspected to have kind of pagan roots, but it had a bit of a revival, um, kind of in the 1930s in a lot of a lot of villages. But there were still some that had carried on the tradition into one or two that had carried it on into the Victorian era. Gotcha. Uh, so, so it's it's something that sort of had various forms that's been around. But yeah, there weren't weren't many villages that still doing it in the Victorians, but we, a couple, so yeah. Very good. <laughs> and and the cool thing about Shadows at the Door, whenever Mark was picking authors for the anthology and inviting people to write, he, he one of the things that he wanted to do was to have each of us set our story in and uh, either where we we currently resided or in places that we had lived in the past so that we were kind of bringing our own personal experiences into the story, which I thought was pretty neat. Yeah. Um, when he said he wanted it writing in a local, I was like, ooh, um, right. Because I'm normally quite vague about where things are set. So I was like, mm-hmm. something like that. So I thought it would be a perfect opportunity to do something like that's so almost unique to Derbyshire. There's not very many places outside of Derbyshire that have this kind of well-dressing tradition. 
so I, I decided to go with that I made it a fictional village for mine I didn't name a particular village because I knew there'd be somebody going well I think you're fine we didn't have well dressing until <laughs> <laughs> right. 1935 so, so it was a it was a, a fictional village but it is set in Derbyshire amongst that wakes week which was like the, when all the factories and everything used to close down for a week and people used to go to the the beaches and you know when the railway came and all that so so that that sort of thing went on all over the country with the the wakes week so now is that is that so celebrated there uh not so much because we have sort of official holidays and things now so and most of the factories have closed in in the sort of in the peak district so Well, that's very cool. I, I really enjoyed this story. I really enjoyed getting a chance to narrate it. I think not only is it a, a you know a collection of great ghost stories, there's definitely so much more to it because the authors did bring so much of their their own personal history and, and area history to the stories. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking forward to reading all because I haven't read everybody's yet. I'm looking forward to seeing all the ones from all the other different places because it's, obviously it's not just in England. They're all around mm-hmm. the world. So it's going to be quite good. And about the things like the well dressing and things which are the traditions that are still going on it feels quite you know like this this could happen right this exactly because exactly. <laughs> it because it's still you know it's something it's a place you can relate to well that's so kind of the old hit- mr james adage isn't it that you know be careful this could happen to you yeah so there's something about hearing a story that's set and you hear an actual place name or something and you go ooh. Oh, that could actually happen. Maybe <laughs> right. that actually happened. I wonder if that, you know, it's that sort of curiosity. I wonder if any of this actually happened. But... <laughs> Absolutely. So, yes, don't, don't, I'm flying the flag for Derbyshire with this one. <laughs> Very nice. So, tell folks where they can find more of your work. I know you do some blog posts and you're active on Goodreads, you're active on Twitter, and uh, you have a Facebook page out there. Where, where can fans of your work find you and interact and find more of your work? Uh, well, as you say, I'm on I'm on Facebook, so www.facebook.com forward slash KB Goddard. Mm-hmm. Or I'm on Twitter at KB Goddard. I'm very predictable. <laughs> <laughs> that makes it easy. Yep. It's good, good marketing. Good reads, KB Goddard. You can, fi- you can find me. I'm pretty much KB Goddard. I'm there. I'm, I'm on WordPress or Blogger or Goodreads, Twitter, mm-hmm. Instagram. I'm, I'm everywhere. That's I'm right. Everywhere. Just check the show notes, folks. I have links to all of KB Goddard's stuff there for you, including your your Amazon page so they can pick up copies of your books in either digital or print form. Um, A lot of good stuff out there. Well, thank you so much for taking so much time on a Saturday to sit down and talk about your work and yourself and your stories that we can hear coming up in in various mediums soon. I really hope that uh, folks will check out your work on Amazon and and tune in for the lift and and uh, pick up a copy of the Shadows at the Door anthology if they haven't already. All great yeah, places. Now. That's right. Hint hint hint. <laughs> plug. That's right. A shameless plug. That's okay. That's shameless. what this is here for. Shameless plug here. That's right. <laughs> well, again, thank you so so much, and I hope you have a great weekend. No problem. Thank you. You're welcome. Ha, 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 ha,